There's a lot more in that, and I recommend you, you watch the video if you get a chance, but this is a man who is deeply rooted in who Christ is and what Christ has done for him, so much so that in the face of turmoil and utter despair and one of the worst things that could have happened to him in his life at that point, he can show and express and display the love of God, even to the people that have hurt him in that process. And so there's a lot of people who are seeing this now, praise be to God, who maybe never even met this family, but they're hearing this good news. And just uh, an example of some of the things that they're saying. So from this site, deadspin.com, where one of the many sites where his video was posted, one lady wrote this in the comments, I'm not a believer, but if more Christians showed this kind of Christ-likeness, one might start to wonder. Another person said, at the risk of sounding horrible, that right there might be the only reason I've seen that religion is worth anything. Another person said, we, and then in parentheses he said, I, I rag on religion. But if it can make you feel the way Monty Williams appears to feel at this absolute lowest point of his life, then it serves its purpose. The last one I want to share, this lady said, it's always heartwarming when a true Christian is heard from. I'm not religious but I believe the teachings of Christ is the lessons of forgiveness. She said, I am not religious, but it's always heartwarming when a true Christian is heard from. I don't know if most of the world can really say that, because I don't know if most of the world has really heard from a true Christian, from a true believer, who has actually seen and heard the good news of who God is and what he's done, the gospel, we call it, displayed. And if they've experienced from us. And so here's this man who is so rooted in that truth that in the face of this pain, people are hearing and seeing good news and the love of Christ displayed. And what I want to share with all of us this morning as we continue in your Rooted series, which is interesting because we're going to be starting a Rooted series back home in Phoenix pretty soon, and so I get to just reuse this message. It saved me some time, which is good. But what I want to share with you is that we, all of us, when we become believers in who God is and what he's done for us through Christ, that we then not only just get this individual salvation that makes us feel warm and fuzzy and sit on the sidelines, but that we become rooted into the story of God, which means we are rooted into the purpose of that story, his mission. We become rooted in God's mission. He invites us to come alongside of him and join that mission, which means we become missionaries. Now, for many of us, we've heard that word missionary, and it carries a lot of connotations. So I just want to ask, what are some things you think of when I say that word missionary? What do you think of? Out of the country? Yeah. What else? Homeschooled. Works. Guys on bicycles with white shirts, yeah. Sacrifice. Anything else? Bring people to God. Talking to people, showing them God. Yeah, that's good. So lots of great things I've heard there, and I would say accurate things. 
and then lots of other things that are, have become accurate from what we've seen as, missionary, as people live out this identity and idea of what a missionary is or should be, but aren't exactly what Scripture teaches us. Now, Scripture, it doesn't use the word missionary, but uses the most close translation we can find is sent one, that we are sent. There's a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, maybe you've heard of him, and he says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's a bold statement, isn't it? Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. What he means by that is that when you become a believer in Christ, you have no option to sit on the sidelines. You are called into that mission. And I think we've done a huge disservice by giving this, painting this picture of what we think a missionary should be instead of looking to Scripture and being rooted in the Word and what it says we are all called as believers, as followers in Christ to be. Because all of us are called to be missionaries because we're created in the image of a missionary God. Have you ever thought about God that way, that he is a missionary? What does that word mean? If you really just break it down, the root of that word, mission. God has a mission. He is on a mission. And he has been on a mission since the beginning of time. And so I want to share from our scripture this morning, Ezekiel chapter 34. And we're just going to read verses 11 through 12. Now, I want to point out, this is Old Testament. Okay, so a lot of us, when we talk about being missionaries, we immediately think of the Great Commission, don't we? Matthew 28, Jesus tells the disciples, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. It's, it's beautiful, and it's a great summation of who we're called to be because of the story of God. But if we only take those few verses what we'd have a tendency to do is to, one, misconstrue and twist what those words actually mean for us, or two, think that those words only apply to a select few people. But what I want us to see is that those few verses in the New Testament are just a summation of the entire story of God and who we are. And so in Ezekiel 34, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I this is God talking. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. This is the Old Testament. When a shepherd sees that one of his sheep has gotten lost, he goes and he searches for them and brings them back. When the flock of sheep are in danger by a bear or a wolf, the shepherd steps in and protects them. And God is saying, I am that shepherd over my people. And so what we see is all the way back to Genesis 3, when the first man and woman chose to rebel against God, when they chose to cut off this community, this perfect relationship and connection with God the Father of all things, that God set this plan in motion and he became a missionary God on this mission, relentlessly pursuing after them to bring them back. But I would even go so far as to say that 
the mission of God starts even before that. When we look in Scripture, it starts from the very beginning, Genesis 1, that God from the beginning had a plan to create. And so he's already active and moving in his mission. And he, he forms man from the dust of the ground. He gets his hands dirty and breathes his own breath into him to give him life. And he comes down from his throne in the heavens of the universe and walks and talks with man on earth, relational. He pursues after them. And so God creates man and woman, and Scripture tells us he creates them in his image to be like him. And he gives them a purpose before the fall, before they rebel against him, they have a purpose, a mission. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Subdue all the earth. Have dominion over the animals. Basically, be like me. You're my representatives. I want you to be here and take care of everything. I want you to experience all these things that I've given to you. And I want you to show all of creation what I'm like. So God creates man and woman to experience his goodness and to display his goodness. This was his mission for his people. And then when they rebel against him, what does he do right away? He pursues them. He comes looking for him. He says, where are you? Why are you hiding? Why are you, why are you covering yourself? Did someone tell you that you're naked? What's going on? He comes after them. He pursues them. A missionary God. And then he addresses their situation and he cares for them tangibly and physically. He clothes them. He curses a serpent. He gives them a promise. I'm going to come back one day through another. I'm going to make all of this right. I'm going to undo all of this. Why? For what purpose? This was not a plan B. Like God was like, shoot, now what do I do? Well, all right, let's go to plan B. Here's Jesus. No, it was for the very same purpose, to bring them back and reconcile relationship so that man and woman could experience his goodness and display it to the rest of creation. And so God becomes like a shepherd caring for his sheep. He continues to do this all throughout Scripture. So we see that he did this with Adam and Eve. He, he pursued them. He called out to them, seeks after them. If you skip forward in the story a little bit, you see that God pursues this one man, Abram, and changes his name to Abraham, and he calls him to be the father of many nations. He says that I'm going to create my people through you. You're going to have a lot of children. And when Abraham doubts that, and he's like, me and my wife are too old, I want to see how that's going to happen, tries to take matters into his own hands, sleeps with his wife's servant girl, Hagar. She has a child. Sarah regrets it, kicks her out of the house, so Hagar now is left with her young child in the desert by herself with no food or water left, and God pursues even her. This lady who wasn't part of the original promise with Abraham's family, God pursues even her. And she says something beautiful when he does. She says, you are the God who sees me. Do you know that this morning, that there is a God who sees you? There's a God who knows you, who knows everything you've done or that has been done to you, and he pursues you. 
no matter what your story is. And he continues to show this all throughout Scripture. He pursues Jacob later, wrestles with him when Jacob's running away from his brother because he's scared. He found Moses, pursued him in the desert, calls him to lead his people out of captivity from Egypt. And in fact, we're, we're preaching through Exodus back at home in Phoenix. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, it says that God hears the cries of the Israelites when they're in slavery. And this beautiful, beautiful sentence that it finishes Exodus 2 with, and God knew. He knows what's going on in your heart. And he's pursuing you like a shepherd. He called out to Samuel in the silence of the night. He went out into the hills after David. He found Elijah in a cave and Job on a heap of ashes, sulking. And he goes and he comforts both of them. He pursues Jonah and finds him in the belly of a fish. He pursues Saul on the Damascus road and turns a persecutor of Christians into the Apostle Paul, through whom he writes most of the New Testament. Do you see this pattern here? Ultimately culminating in, he sends his son, Jesus, to come and preach good news. Have you ever thought about why Jesus says, I've come preaching good news before he even goes to the cross? Preaching good news, that word translated to the gospel. And we've reduced the gospel to mean that Jesus died on a cross and rose for our sins, right? Which is true. You guys are like, this crazy guy from Phoenix said that that's not the gospel. No, that's the gospel too. But Jesus said, I came preaching the gospel long before he ever did that. Because what we see here in Ezekiel and so many other parts of scripture is that God has been pursuing his people all along. And it culminates in Jesus. So Jesus comes and he calls his disciples into this. And he tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In Colossians 1, this is what it says about Jesus, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Stop right there. We said that man and woman were created in the image of God, right? Well, we broke that. We became marred reflections of that when we chose to rebel against God and not trust him any longer. And so Jesus becomes this remnant of humanity, the one who could come and actually experience and display the goodness of God fully and faithfully and to do it on our behalf. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of everything. I'm sorry, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What are two words you kept hearing over and over in that? All things. You can say, all right, thanks, guys. I like the participation. I appreciate that. All things. You know what the, the word in the original Greek translates that to? All things. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, a linguist, but I'm pretty sure that's what it says, all things. Do you know what does not fall into that category of all things? Nothing. Everything is his. He created it all. 
and it all falls under his authority, reign, and rule, and it is all through him that it exists, and it was all made for him. So when we reduce the gospel to this news that it is for your individual salvation, that you get this personal savior and a get-out-of-hell-free card, and then you can just kind of lay back and live your life and be comfy, what a disservice we do to the true story of the world, right? What a disservice we do when we tell that story to others around us. And the reason people responded the way they did to our friend Monty Williams when he was sharing that is because they see in the life of this man and his players have affirmed this, that he sees all of life being all about Jesus. That Jesus is working to reconcile all things in creation to himself. And guess what? You and I, we just get to be a part of it. And that's good news because we also fall under that category of all things. And so Jesus comes and he has shepherded you. He has pursued you like a lost sheep and he brings you back into his fold and then he calls you to be a part of it because you too were made in the image of God. He became a broken, marred reflection of that image. But Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, came and has restored you and reconciled you and has fixed you, the cracks in your mirror that display what God looks like. So now he calls you, being in the image of who he is, a shepherd, to stop being a sheep and then come help shepherd others, to bring the lost sheep back into the fold. The conversion of sinner to saint is kind of like less of the game hide and seek and more like the game ditch him. You guys play that game ditch him ever? Maybe it's just a Phoenix thing. I don't know. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about ditch him. Maybe you have a different name for it. So ditch him, to play ditch him, first of all, you have to be an 80s kid, which I was. I know they're seeing hairlines me look like I'm probably sometime before that, but I'm an 80s kid. And what you do is you get a group of kids that are just up to no good, making trouble in their neighborhood. No, I'm just kidding. So you get a group of kids, and a bunch of them leave one kid behind, and they go down to, the, like, the school, right, the local school, and they start jumping on top of the rooftop, getting behind dumpsters, scaling fences, doing whatever they can to get this great hiding place. And then the one kid who's it stays back at home drinking Shasta Kula until, like, the timer goes off, and then he's like, all right, I got to find him. So he takes off running after him. And what happens is, if I find you, and I'm it, it's not enough like hide and seek just to go, I see you behind the tree. I gotta like hunt you down. So I better be fast. And it's a foot race, and I'm gonna catch you. But the second that I catch you, it's again, not like hide and seek, at least the way we played it, where like you get caught, you tag, you're out of the game, you just sit it out. No, like I catch you, and this switch flips in your mind, and you immediately go from running away from me to running with me to pursue all the others. And you go, hey, I know where Joe's hiding. I saw him earlier. And you go after him. And that's the way this works, that Jesus comes and he finds you as a lost sheep and immediately calls you to be a shepherd and help him herd the rest back. And I'm afraid that too often the church is playing the game like hide and seek. We're hiding from Jesus. We're running from Jesus. And the second we feel like he gets us, we're like, all right, cool, I'm good. I can sit this out now. But Jesus comes after 
his disciples, and he calls them to be fishers of men. He calls them into this mission of his. Chris Wright said this. He said, God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. Let me say that again because I know it sounds tricky. I see some of the wheel spin. God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. His mission to have a people who would experience and display his goodness. The same mission he has had all along, he establishes his church for that purpose. It's not like he's, he's like, all right, I got this group of people now saying they're going to follow me. I got to have something for them to do. And then it signs us some busy work, right? No, he has a mission and a purpose and a plan for reconciling all things to himself. And he establishes the church because that's the way he chooses to do that to work that mission through, through you and I. Is that good news? Not that we can do what we want to do and pray that God would come and be behind it, but that we actually get to come alongside what the creator of the universe is doing and be a part of what he's doing. Which one sounds like it's going to be more successful? That's right. Coming behind God, right? So then we get to what Jesus says in Matthew 28, what we know is the Great Commission. And I just want to read to you. I know you've probably heard it a million times, but I'm going to start in 28, verse 17. And when they saw him, him being Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I want you to catch that because he's about to call all of them to join this mission. All of them. But some doubted, and so they don't get to play a part of it. So when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that make him? God, yeah. God, king, all authority on heaven and on earth. And he says, because of that, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Out of his authority of being king, God, over all creation, he commands his disciples. And he commands them, but... He tells them, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. The beauty of the Great Commission is he bookends it with his authority and the fact that he's going to be right there with you the whole time. You don't have to do this on your own. Here's the truth about God's mission is he's calling you to do some crazy, difficult stuff. If you look at the lives of the original 11 after Judas left and betrayed him, the original 11 men who followed Jesus around for three years, day in, day out, the stuff that he called them to do when he was with them, but especially the stuff that he called them to do later after he left, was crazy. And the hardships that they endured because of it, being killed, being imprisoned. And what we do on Sunday mornings a lot of times is say, if you follow Jesus, everything is going to turn around for you in your life. 
And all you got to do is say this prayer. But I know that might make you uncomfortable. And so if you don't want to say this prayer out loud, just say it in your head with me and just raise your hand. But if you don't feel comfortable, raise your hand. Just give me a little nod. Have you ever sat in a church like that? Because I have. And some of you are like, what is this dude talking about? And that's a good thing. That's a blessing, all right? We have reduced the Christian life to that. So then what happens is when people in our church start hearing someone actually preaching from Scripture, like this is what God is calling you to do, they're like, peace, I'm out. Ain't nobody got time for that. What are you talking about? I don't want to do that. That's hard. But Jesus calls us to die to our flesh, to pick up our cross and follow after him. He says, are you able to drink from my cup? Are you able to take on what I've taken on? Are you able to do what I've done? Here's the answer to all that. No, you're not. But, he says, I will be with you to the ends of the age. Before he leaves them for good, he gives them a promise. He tells them to go and wait. I'm going to read it to you, actually. It's in Acts 1. In the first book, Paul writes, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus didn't do anything outside of the power of the Spirit. He didn't even tell his disciples what to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. He commands them through the Spirit. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The same Spirit who hovered over the earth at creation at the very beginning, the same Spirit who Jesus was born into this earth by, the same Spirit who led him into the wilderness to overcome temptation, the same spirit that he spoke to his disciples through, the same spirit that led him to the cross, even when he was so anxious about what was about to happen that he sweat in blood, but the same spirit who empowered him to go there, the same spirit who, after he died, rose him back to life three days later. This is the spirit that Jesus promises to send with us. This is how he says, I'm going to be with you to the ends of the age. There's a huge misnomer in the church that says, God won't give you anything beyond what you could handle. And pardon my French, but that's baloney. I know where it comes from in Scripture that you won't find any temptation that you cannot bear, but guess what? You, you can bear that temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in your flesh. And you will be faced with trials and hardships in life, not just temptations, but just things that stink, that you can't get through on your own. And you will be asked to go and do things by God that you cannot do on your own. But thank God he has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit, who empowers us to do all of those things these same people who were running and hiding after Jesus 
died after he left, and they didn't know what was going on or what to think, and they're hiding in an upper room. Once the Holy Spirit, the gift that Jesus promised them, comes upon them, they immediately go out and boldly start preaching that this Jesus who you just killed, who everyone thought was crazy, he truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He truly is the Son of God. And people are like, what are you talking about? We just killed him. I mean, that's why they're scared hiding in the upper room, right? But because the Spirit comes upon them, they are emboldened to go out and say something so crazy like that. And because the Holy Spirit was upon them, thousands of people started believing. This is the gift that we have, the good news, that you weren't called to go and make disciples in your own strength and your own power. Jesus did everything, even talking to the disciples through the Holy Spirit. So why is it that you and I feel like we can do this in our own strength? Like we're somehow stronger than Jesus. You wouldn't say that out loud, but that's functionally what you're saying and I'm saying. And so we need to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust in him. And the good news is that he will give us that strength. Acts 4, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What is the miraculous thing that the Spirit empowers them to do? Speak the word of God with boldness. I think a lot of times we're all looking for these, at least in, in some of the camps that I've been around, we're all looking for these crazy gifts of the Spirit that just look really cool. Right? Or we want to speak in tongues, maybe. We want to prophesy. And those are, we find those in Scripture. I'm not saying those aren't good things. But we want to see the true power of the Holy Spirit. This is where it's worked out. When you are rooted in the Holy Spirit, then you will see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we know the fruit of the Holy Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You want to see something radical in your life? You submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. You get rooted in who he is, and you will see those things lived out. Can you muster up more love for somebody when they've done wrong to you? Do you think Monty Williams could have said, I want you to pray for the family of this lady who is driving 90-plus miles an hour and took my wife from me and our five children. Do you think he could say, I have no ill feelings toward them in his own strength? But the fruit of the Spirit was seen in his life because he was rooted in the Spirit and the promise that Jesus was sending. So the Father, a missionary God, sends his Son on a mission, who then sends his spirit to the church, who then sends you and I out into the world. Do you see this pattern of sending? And so the closest word we have for that now is missionaries, but we are sent ones, sent into the world to look for lost sheep. The good news is you don't have to do it on your own. You have the spirit with you. And I want you to enjoy that freedom to understand that the burden of salvation is not placed on you or me. We are called to make disciples. But I want you to think about this. Judas Iscariot 
was counted as one of the 12 disciples, wasn't he? The dude that betrayed Jesus and gave him up for some money and had him killed. He was a disciple because he spent three years, day in and day out, walking with this Jesus. And Jesus taught him, just like he taught the other 11, even knowing what was going to happen. And so when you and I are called to make disciples, that's what we're called to do, is to invite people into community and to speak the gospel boldly to them. But their response to that, their salvation, that's between them and the Lord. That burden is not on you. There's good news in that. That's why Jesus can say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, because he's the one doing the heavy lifting. He's the one working out the salvation of souls. But we do have this intentionality on us. We are called to disciple people. We are called to invite people into community to share the good news with them. And in doing that, you will be faithful. Sometimes it's easy to look around at things like our, our gospel communities or our church and to feel like, man, are we even being successful? Is this even working? And I don't think success by our standards is the way to measure that. I'd much rather use that word faithful. Are we being faithful? Because God called Jeremiah to go and speak to this nation and he told him straight up, they're not gonna listen to you. It would be easy to say this wasn't successful, but he was being faithful. Stephen, right before he got martyred, was being faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Nobody turned and repented in that moment. They threw stones at him and killed him. And so I say this to our missional community leaders back at home a lot. Just be thankful people aren't throwing rocks at you. All right? But don't ask, am I being successful? Am I being faithful? Take that burden of salvation off of you, but be intentional, be a servant in making disciples. And so Jesus tells him, he does want you to have this intentionality. Go and make disciples, but he will be the one who saves them. So I want to ask you how, and I just want you to think about this. How would your perspective on your neighborhood or your workplace or your school if you're a student, how would your perspective on these places change if you embrace the truth that you are God's sent person into these places? Not that you're there to get a paycheck or to get an education or to go home and kick your shoes off and relax. But if you are God's sent person in that place, that you have good news to bring there. And here's the thing, is we will only live that out when we truly believe it's good news. I want to leave you with this quote. J.D. Greer says, The gospel has done its work in us when we crave God more than we crave everything else in life, more than money, romance, family, health, fame, and when seeing his kingdom advance in the lives of others gives us more joy than anything we could own. Do you truly believe that you have been given good news? That you can experience the goodness of God and that nothing else will even come close to satisfying you? Because when you truly believe that and you experience and you taste and see that he's good, then you will walk 
in that identity of a missionary of displaying his goodness. That's been God's plan and purpose for you all along. If you've ever wondered, God, what am I here for? That is it. Let's pray. Father, your word says, Habakkuk chapter 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. God, that, that redundancy is on purpose, the waters covering the sea. That's how much the earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory. And God, we know that it is already filled with your glory, but it is not yet filled with the knowledge of it. We know it will be. Romans 14 tells us a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And so we know that all will have the knowledge one day, God, but we pray that we would be a people, your church, for your mission. God, that we would help, help people see the knowledge of your glory this side of Jesus returning before it's too late. Because God, when, when their knees bow after you come back, Jesus, it's going to be it's going to be because they are forced to. It's going to be because they didn't know that you are God right here and now. And it's going to be a horrible awakening for them. And God, we know that you are patient and long-suffering until that day because you want to see more and more come to the knowledge now. That they would be rooted in who you are now so that it would be good news for them and not destruction. So that they would be children of God and not children of wrath. And God, we know that we are here for that purpose and that purpose alone. So Lord, strip away the junk in our hearts and in our flesh that want to keep us from living this out, that want us to pursue other things. And God, may we be a people who pursue spreading the knowledge of your glory, engaging in your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that each week you all take communion together, and that's what we do back at home too, and so I'm excited for that. Um, you know how you do it. You usually come with a couple other people and, and have a question to discuss. I have three questions. The first two I want you to take with you and just pray and pray and wait on the Spirit to answer for you. And then the third one is one that you can talk about right now together. And so the first two questions, number one, who specifically, not just the lost in San Diego, that's a, a broad answer, but God, who specifically are you sending me to? on mission. And then who specifically are you sending me with? That might be the people in your gospel communities, DNA group, whatever that looks like. So that God, they can see this lived out in a community of people who believe you and love you. So who, Spirit, who are you sending me to? Who are you sending me with? Pray about those questions. Continue to pray about this one too, but you can talk about it together now. How will we keep each other rooted in God's mission? How will we remind one another day in and day out that this is what we are here for? This is what we are called to because there's a lot of distractions in the world that will take you from it.
So discuss that question as you come to the table and as you remember that Jesus, as a missionary, came, left his home in the heavens, came to this earth, and gave everything for God's mission of reconciling you and I to him. That he gave his life. So as you take the bread, remember that he took on flesh for us. And then he had that flesh broken. And as you take the juice, you remember that he had blood pumping through his veins like a normal man. And he didn't have to do that. But he did it so then he could have that blood spilled for you and I. And pray, God, how can we faithfully walk in that truth and love the way that Jesus has loved? Come as you're ready.